Breaking Silos, Episode 3, Versus, SSI, and the Spatial Web with Gabriel René. We started to develop um, an application. We found uh, a first client here um, in early 2019 here in Los Angeles. Walked in and had a version of our current technology. We'd never applied it to uh, any sort of warehouse behavior. Um, without integrating with their inventory system, which we had to do later, we showed them a side-by-side comparison of three picks and we beat their current system by 200%. Self-sovereign identity, or SSI, is an exciting new technology that's gaining traction globally. SSI puts you in control of your digital life, enables magical user experiences, and creates powerful new network effects. Welcome to Breaking Silos, the first program dedicated to the business models of self-sovereignty and the path to re-decentralizing the internet. I'm Timothy Ruff, your host and general partner at Digital Trust Ventures. Today, we're gonna be hearing from the executive director of Versus, a company I'm excited about uh, that may well be the early leader in bringing transitive trust technologies into production. He is the executive director of both Versus, which you can look at uh, online at versus.io, and the way they spell it is V-E-R-S-E-S dot I-O, and they've got an excellent website, strongly encourage you to visit that. And also, he's he's also executive director of the Spatial Web Foundation, which you can find at spatialwebfoundation.org, and that's spatial, S-P-A-T-I-A-L, He's a technologist, an entrepreneur, he's an author and a producer, 25-year career in technology, telecom, and media uh, industry, specializing in emerging technologies like AR, VR, AI, Internet of Things, and of course, uh, blockchain and DLT. He's architected both enterprise and consumer software services with multiple Fortune 100 companies and advised Verizon, Sony, Intel, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Yahoo!, Qualcomm, Apple, Samsung, Universal, AT&T, and a bunch more that I'm not going to name. It's, it's, it's impressive enough. He has served, or he serves as the executive director of the, uh, of the foundation. He's dedicated to the adoption of spatial technologies across really every major industry. And so that's going to be the focus of our chat today. Last thing, he is the author of the number one international bestseller. It's called or titled The Spatial Web. How Web 3.0 Connects Humans, Machines, and AI to Transform the World. And when you go check it out on Amazon, you'll see it's got over 100 glowing reviews. And I just ordered it and skimmed it. Can't wait to, to dive in deep. And I've already read a bunch of their materials over the last six months on their site. And it's something that uh, one uh, technology pundit, Peter, Peter uh, Diamandis, has taken a keen interest in. And he's now uh, officially an advisor for them. So uh, a warm welcome to Executive Director of Versus and the Spatial Web Foundation, Gabriel Rene. Thank you, Tim. What a, uh, <laughs> I, I wish it felt as good as it sounds. First off, right out of the gates, uh, what in the world is the Spatial Web? Yes, yeah, so I think over the last five years or so, we've, we've been seeing a trend describing the new ingredients of the next era of technology, right? And Different, different parties, whether you're reading you know, McKinsey or Deloitte or Accenture, different sort of reports about the future. These guys are you know, paid a lot of money to research all this. We tend to see all the, the same common elements, right? 
oh, it's about AI, it's about blockchain, it's about AR and VR, spatial computing, oh, it's about IoT, uh, it's about uh, robotics. And, and some people talk you know, through the language of Web 3.0, or if it's industry, it's industry 4.0. The Japanese are actually describing it as a civilizational sort of upgrade, it's a paradigm shift they call uh, society 5.0. But you end up seeing these same sort of usual suspects, these, these core technologies um, which Peter Diamandis and others, you know, talk about in, in terms of exponential technologies because their impact, um, you know, c- can can be so extreme and so rapid and so fast. In fact, Peter's new book, I think, is called "The Future Is Faster." Uh, you know, it's the idea that that this is all coming much faster than we think. So, with these uh, these various, you know, what we call convergence technologies, because the question becomes, how do they really work together? The underlying question is. What what technology will will enable these these technologies to be used in a way where they can communicate, uh, where you can coordinate their use, and then um, and then you can collaborate with other parties. So how do how do we take all of these called you know the blockchain folks like to kind of say Internet of Value and the the you know the, the Internet of Things or some people you call the, the AR VR crew you know maybe the Internet of Non Things is their narrative or the Internet of Intelligence which is some you know some of the AI folks. Where we're talking about for a while. And the spatial web is actually the internet of everything. Uh, all of these things are talking about being connected to themselves, but when you start to think about connecting them to each other, how are they connected? And so that turns out the defining reference point here for us, and when you look at those reports, so from many of those, uh, those same groups, you'll see the term cyber physical systems as being the trend for industry 4.0. What they're really talking about in our uh, from our vantage point, is the spatialization of compute. So whether you're whether you call that ubiquitous computing or ambient computing or distributed computing or decentralized computing or spatial computing, all of which those technologies fall into those sort of those references, you're really fundamentally talking about the relationship of of technology or compute in space. Whether that's computing all around us, whether that's holographic, whether that's AI, whether it's whether it's voice or gesture based. Whether it's a you know, facial recognition cameras or 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 robots operating in space like drones and automated vehicles, so the spatial web becomes the phrase for the next evolutionary phase of the web. But at the point where the web and the world start to converge themselves, and so we need an entirely new kinds of approaches to technology and to networks that consider the relationship between the physical and the digital, and that intersection of both technology and society. And so that's what the book tries to tackle as well, the relationship between humans, machines, and AI, and what kind of context those take place in the world, and ultimately an entirely new design uh, architecture and a new type of protocol that would enable all that communication, coordination, and collaboration at scale, which hopefully would be used to transform the world for the better uh, in the coming uh, century. All right. So I've, I've got so many questions, mm-hmm. but just real basic I thought with self-sovereign identity, we were being ambitious. This sounds as aspirational as aspirational can be because you're taking all of the big names, all the big technologies, and you're saying, here's a vision where they can all play nice together. And, and yet the reason we're talking is because I'm super impressed about the business model that you've created that uses this concept. But I, I'm still a little, I'm a little hung up. If I'm a listener hearing what you said, understood all the words, made perfect sense uh, just from an English language standpoint. But <laughs> what does it mean to actually tie those things together? And if you can, 
bring it home with a specific example that can make it relatable. Part of the challenge of this narrative is that we have difficulty imagining things beyond, let's call it like our, what we consider a reasonable horizon. And our horizons, when it comes to predicting the future, are typically linear. So we, we think that things will advance at the rate that we're, we're most used to. With technology, the power of computing, the rate under which we're able to compute and the cost of compute um, essentially doubles every 12 to 18 months. Right? This is called uh, Moore's Law. Right? And so this, this became very clear from the research that, that occurred over the years that computing actually doesn't progress in the same way that, that most other things do. It, it progresses exponentially, right? Two, four, four to eight, eight, 16. So in 32 leaps, you're at a billion instead of at 32. And that's a huge difference. So the other thing, the other important law here, which is I'm talking more from a why this is inevitable as opposed to how we boil it down, just because I want to give some context for this wasn't just how do we make a, a soup and put all this stuff in it. It's how do we follow these trends and where do they where do they arrive at? So the second one is called Metcalf's law, and it has to do with the value of a network. And so this was really derived by the fact that more nodes or more points in a network exponentially increase the usage, the utility, therefore the value of the network. So this is, you know, one fax machine is basically useless, right? Two is okay, 10 is much better. When you get to thousands, it's useful. So this is this came out of sort of the telecom uh, networks. How do you value networks? So what happens when the cost of compute is constantly dropping in half, or rather the power of compute is doubling, and the power of every computer connected to every other computer increases its value and its utility? Well, what ends up happening is you end up computing everything, which is why computers have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more high-powered, and you end up connecting everything in order to get the benefit of that compute. So that's the reason why all these things end up being connected because they're designed to compute. And as soon as you're designed to compute, you want to be able to share that information. So if you chart that course over the next couple of decades, you realize that compute gets down to like, you know, very, very small, like we're even looking, you know, nano compute now. And networking functionality takes place at a massive scale. You can just look at the last 10 years and see we go from basically nobody on a handheld computer to billions of people on a handheld computer within a decade. So the rate of this and the, the, the methods, the underlying forces that are driving it are significant, backed by now billions and billions of dollars from the largest corporations in the world, all driving to compete to get them. So how does that play out in, in our day-to-day lives? Well, it kind of depends on what point we're talking, but let's go out to a meaningful point. Field workers across every major industry that have to go on location, um, whether to whether it's to repair something, to maintain something, to upgrade something, to fix something. This is from you know warehouse workers to to uh, to telecom folks, even even your the local firemen essentially get deployed to go do physical activities in the world. If you take your average warehouse worker, they're essentially looking at a screen where the current today's current web technologies tell them, "Hey, Tim, go pick up item JLKF four nine two." It's on row 17, aisle 12, section 14F. And then you got to go wander around a million square foot warehouse and go try to find that, that item, that, that pick, and then take it and put it, put it in the dock so someone who just you know, bought it on Amazon or, or on, on some e-commerce site could get it shipped to their house. That process today, as it is for every field worker, uh, millions of them around the world, is them looking at digits on a screen, 
trying to contextually route themselves in the world. Well, when you take something like augmented reality and you take the screen from their hands and you put augmented reality glasses on their face and you take that information about where that item is and you just give them an arrow that they follow like like you would Google Maps or Waze to your destination. And when you get to that location, you're not looking up where JF4X9Q is. You're just seeing a glowing box and you go grab the item out of the box. And the artificial intelligence that's looking through the camera is able to identify that product and update the inventory system. And by the way, at this point now, both a human and or a robot could take that same action because you've you've essentially now, in that one scenario, included uh, IoT device, which happens to be the headset, uh, a, a bit of computer vision and AI that's controlling the mapping holographic information that is augmented reality. And you have a human doing that task, but you could also have a robot. You have a robot take them there and drop them off. You could have a robot actually replace the activity. Could, humans could collaborate. Now, the moment that, that you have that functionality, that's something we actually have today, you have an example of a spatial web application. It's just one application that would be kind of like, you know, the, the very first applications we saw on mobile devices. There's, you know, a calculator or, or Apple Maps or whatever. Now, of course, there are millions and millions of applications on the same type of standardized operating systems like Android and iOS. So when you have an underlying set of standards that you can build on top of, all the different manufacturers, developers, hardware and software makers can start to use that free and open standard and ensure the interoperability between those systems so that when that person walks out, they don't have to leave that pair of glasses. That could just be a mode they're in at work. And instead, it helps guide them home. Or it helps they go, they go to uh, they, they go shopping. It's able to take their shopping list from their personal you know smart profile or smart account, which uses SSI, which logs them in when they enter a Whole Foods, and then just basically maps out the location where all their food is, so they can just go pick that. That's a way of connecting spaces and people and technologies and use cases. This sounds super futuristic, like like Blade Runner. But you say you've got this working right now. You you've got a product that enables what you call field workers in a warehouse to put on some glasses and it'll lay out the map for them on those glasses so they can go pick the proper product in that million square foot warehouse. That, that example of the spatial web that I can see now how it brings in, in yeah. AR, um, AI, I'm, I'm still wanting to know how self-sovereign identity fits into there, but I can certainly see those technologies being brought in. But you've got this working today and is it in production? Are customers using it? Yeah. So yes, yeah, so we have we've deployed that application with the first customer uh, this year. And this year is in twenty twenty. Oh yeah, yeah. We started testing last year, but it's 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 deployed now. Uh, and then there's many more clients behind that lining up, and and not just that use case. Actually, many many other use cases that are similar. But you know, when you have sort of, um, it turns out the whole world and most of our activity that isn't just pure pure sort of information work the physical activity of the world is all just a, a user moving an item from point a to point b okay it turns out that's kind of the everything so you can really standardize how those are how that functionality is um, is 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 able you're able to build applications very quickly very easily and able to integrate those applications so it sounds cool so let's just stick with the pick and pull thing i think you call is that the product that you call quicksilver yeah. Okay. So let's let's stick with that for just a minute. It sounds cool, but what's the big deal? How much how much benefit does a customer really get by putting on these glasses versus the current system that they would be using to go 
grab the same item? We have seen performance increases of about 25% faster with error rates reduced to almost zero. And what are error rates normally? Um, it can be as high as uh, 8 or 9%. So as high as 8 or 9%, you're seeing error rates go to almost zero. And a 25% improvement in efficiency uh, is that 25% per employee or for the whole warehouse or for what? How's that calculated? It's 25% as an average across uh, different users. But if you, in, in that particular industry where you've got you know, profit margins around 9% and your cost of business is mainly pick and pack workers that are, that are paid you know, $13, $14, $15 an hour. This is a highly transient business. The largest ones basically are dealing with part-time workers that are popping in and out. <laughs> So these are not highly trained people. Your cost of training and ramping folks up at the constant turnover rate you're getting with where you really are seeing about 60% of your costs having to do with these pick and pack workers can account, can equate to something like a 35% profit margin increase. Oh, wow. All right. So let's, let's back away from that for just a minute and, and get back to the, uh, spatial web. And I'd like you to answer the question if you wouldn't mind where self-sovereign identity comes into that. So we dove into one example of the spatial mm-hmm. web, which starts to bring it all together, I think, in an understandable way. And, 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 and the, the business people listening to this, the investors listening to this, uh, should be you know, very interested in seeing something so conceptual brought down to a product that solves a real problem and makes things more efficient. And these guys are selling it and they will talk, uh, you know, uh, hopefully you can share some details about your pipeline and existing customers. The names on the list are extremely impressive. And that's why I'm so excited about your business in your future. Where does self-sovereign identity fit in either to that example or to uh, the spatial web generally? Let me try to provide a little more context and then bring it back to that specific example. Okay. So let's 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 apply it to a future context because this is where SSI becomes meaningful at scale as opposed to sort of just an uh, an application level uh, use. So today, when you and I go online on our computer, what do what do we use? Uh, a browser. Browser. And what does that browser do that's different than the apps that you have on your phone? What does it allow you to do that's fundamentally different? It, it's generic. You can go anywhere instead of just the, the one provider. You can go anywhere, right? When you and I open our browsers, well, let's kind of go back in time. When we first started working with browsers, browsers had no browser history. It wasn't even there in the beginning. It was like, you know, came, came pretty fast. There was no history. Then there was no one collecting that data, right? That was like a local cache. Then the browser wars happened in the mid-90s or so, later 90s. And the war for who, would, who could control that single point, that single interface. Now, again, built on, a, on some standard protocols like HTTP that allowed something like a URL to be standardized, where then you could, you could, anyone could create a page and link it to any other page. That browser history, that, that information started to become really important. And the idea of cookies, so if it wasn't being tracked by, let's say, Google or Apple or whomever, Microsoft, you had a thousand different parties tracking your movements all across the web, right? So, but you weren't really making use of that, that information, but you did get the benefit of being able to go anywhere, which what we definitely didn't do, you know, nowadays, like when I log on, I actually log in 
I log on to Chrome and I'm, I'm actually logged in as an account because I'm, I'm trying to keep things in sync across different systems. But historically, we didn't log on to the web. And even in this case, I'm only logging on to Google, right? So the ultimate use case for something like SSI, in our opinion, which has to do with a shift in the definition of data control, not just to data privacy, but to the, the concept of digital property. And, and it's a, in, in the book, I, I, there's a section on digital identity where I talk about the shift from thinking that we, the sun and all the planets revolved around us to the point where, where we went from that geocentric view of the, of the universe to, a, to, to one where the sun was in the center and we circled around it. We see that SSI and decentralized identity and sort of related technologies around um, let's call it networked identity support that is fundamentally built on uh, on frameworks for, for trust is like that shift from geocentric view of the universe to uh, a solar-centric view of, of the universe, right? Almost no one in the world has tried more times than me over the last five years to explain <laughs> this concept to people over and over and over and over and over, hundreds and hundreds of times. And, and, and yes, it is that big. And it's fun when people finally get the, the aha moment when they actually start to see things from the other way. And some people never have, and we've talked to them many times and it just never clicks, but other people do get it. It takes a little while, but then when they get it, the world just doesn't look the same. I, and, and I imagine that's kind of how it was for people who finally realized, wait a second, the earth isn't the center. (laughs) You know, I think that's a great analogy. Heretic, right? And that, that was an institutional perspective that at the time the church was the institution um, supported to the point where it was you know, heretical and blasphemous to suggest otherwise. And they, I think they burned a few folks and locked up old Galileo. So at, at, I believe we're at that same point where we've got an institutional narrative around identity that's shifting to a, a self-centric pers- perspective on and, and literally sovereignty um, around that notion of identity at the heart of it. So that's a powerful, powerful, uh, and I think it will be historically meaningful transition in the, in the history and nature of thoughts around identity. And so from, from that perspective, you know, we are very grateful for all of the work you and others have done around diving into the heart of that challenge. And, and in a way, people do oh, that's heretical and it's ridiculous. And it turns out, you know, we were wrong. The earth was literally not the center of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. The sun really is. So I think, in, I think history will, 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 um, will, will prove you right. But from our perspective, we actually came at it from a very different... I discovered SSI and, and DID not through looking at identity specifically, but looking at a, a very specific use case, which was, I can't sign on to the web. And so I can't actually see all the information that others are collecting on me, but I should be able to sign on to the world. I need single sign-on for the world. And since the world becomes a hybrid of digital and physical activity, like my current location history is being tracked by Google or Apple or whoever, right? Well, if you combine your location history plus your browser history, but now your browser history isn't words on pages, but is holographic content and information and location-based data, facial recognition cameras that are tracking you, and sensors and beacons that are like triggering things, dynamic situations where you're able to walk in and out of and everything becomes an Amazon go. You walk in and out of an Uber, you walk in and out of an Airbnb, you walk in and out of store, you grab whatever you want. These should not be single siloed platforms or applications where I need to have a separate account for Uber and Amazon and Airbnb 
and everything else in the world as I'm navigating my life. I need single sign-on for the world. And they can all reference that identity and that data set, which is under my control. And, and, and I, have, I, can, I can monetize that data. I can be helpful for them for advertising or Beacon set off spatially to let me know that there's certain opportunities, a wallet that's tied to that that allows me to move in and out of these different situations without having to pull out a credit card, just like I do with Uber. It's, it's a spatial contract. Because I moved in and out or from point A to point B, or with this item, I left this, this facility, all those transactions become automated and what we call spatial economics. And so SSI, in my opinion, is tied to what we consider SSO for the planet. And for the spatial web, since there is no difference between the, like, or I wouldn't say no difference, since the, there's a convergence of the digital world and the physical world, you're, you're signing onto the planet. You're signing into the, into, into the spatial web. And SSI is at the heart of that because this is, this is the fundamentals of your property. It actually ends up being much more highly functional for all of the third parties, reducing their risk, reducing their liability, making sure that the data and information is up to date, that's most contextual. Um, it's under a policy that you can define, right? So we, we think it's that the, the combination of those two is the is the holy grail. Now you can go back from there into a thousand and one use cases, but you can kind of see see like when you get to the point where there's a new interface to the world, which is more or less cameras and other sensors tracking you, and you looking at the world through a layer that now is presenting information not in a screen but into the world itself. You can see how the role of identity would have to change in order for that to be fluid and functional and useful. It's not a browser on a screen. It's a browser for the world. All right. So um, I think it just clicked for me, maybe not in a big way, maybe a medium click, but let me, I, I want you to test my knowledge here. Okay. Early days of the web, there, there wasn't even history. Then we had history and then there wasn't uh, tracking or trading of, of, of the information. And now there is that. And what you're saying is, is with uh, cameras and things being done, you know, the, the proliferation of cameras and things being done in 3D and being tracked in every direction in physical space. Yeah. It's just getting exponentially more risky to keep going down the siloed path where we are, where all these silos are collecting all this information about you. The spatial web needs self-sovereign identity because uh, of that exponentially increased risk. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's not only risk just from a privacy standpoint, it's complexity, right? Just super, yeah. super complex. And now you can say, all right, I am me, and 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 maybe in some countries it's it's wild wild west. But in countries that have laws that respect people's privacy, I could see, if, for example, in Europe, who tends to lead out on these things like GDPR, they're saying, you know what? If you got cameras and you're going to surveil people, here's what you have to do: you have to get their permission to yep. do, it, or you have to give them control of it, or give them the data, or whatever. I could exactly see those, those kinds of things. So. Self-sovereign exactly. identity gives, it lubricates that potentially very high friction interaction between the entity that wants to give you good service and the law that says, well, you got to get consent first yeah. and, and you have to give them some degree of control. You can't just be surveilling everybody just because you can. Uh, and now with self-sovereign identity, people can say, well, sure, if it's this kind of store and I walk by and it's a pizza store, uh, just, you know. Send me a deal on my favorite pizza. That's the customization I want. But anything right. else, I'm not interested. And now you have that point of control where that can finally happen. 
Am I getting exactly. it? 100%. So that, that's exactly right. And so what, what you see happening is this, this convergence uh, or intersection of technology and society. We've never had to deal with this before in this way. And because these are fundamentally computing technologies that are networked, right? Like if I said, hey, Tim, there's this camera over here. It's on the 7-Eleven. Best facial recognition in the world. It's going to notice you every single time you walk by, but it's not connected to any network. It's literally just in that camera. And uh, in fact, no one even knows how to get into it. Like it's, you can never, how much would you care? It's the fact that anything recorded could go anywhere and get into anyone's hands and be used for purposes that you don't know. That It's the network effect that gives us ex- greater utility and greater potential value, but yes, increases that risk. So what you don't want is high utility, high risk, and and high friction, right? We want actually high utility, but low risk and low friction. And and you can actually get all of those if there is just some common sense intersection between what ends up being regulatory environments, standards for technology, and market uses of of, of data, right? And SSI ends up being at the heart of that entire debate. And what spatial web technologies do is actually make it possible to govern it and to execute it at the device level, at the data level, and at the social sort of policy level. So ultimately, we're ending up with in, a, in an era where we're, our laws are going to become digital. And so you have to be able to, you can't have an analog enforcement mechanism for, for, for digital law. You have to have digital law where you can enforce it digitally. And this is the power of SSI tied to smart contracts, tied to location and contextual usage of things. And that's a really good lens to start to see the spatial web. And I've seen uh, in some of your materials, and, and let's just make this last point and then, then move on to the next thing. But I've seen in some of your materials where uh, uh, an entire building is digitized. It's like a digital twin. And I've read about the concept of the digital twin for people mm-hmm. and for the internet of things. But you're talking about completely spatializing or mapping out things in 3D. So even the the vertical space within a room is is mapped out in 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 this building. So if someone, I mean, uh-huh. if you wanted to actually map right to the the location of something that's at a very high shelf in a uh, a massive warehouse, you can do that vertically. It's actually uh-huh. digitally mapped to that that point of space in our world. Yes. Anyway, I'm not saying it right. I know I'm not using the terminology. No, no, that's that's spot on. Spot on. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, we're we're digit. This is what we mean by spatial. Like spatialization is the digitization of, of our environment. And why is that useful? It's because suddenly the context that we need to operate under is the context of the structure of, of physical world. It's not the context of the structure of symbols on a screen. And so all we're doing is saying, well, the technology is fast enough now and of a, of, a, of a reliable enough quality that we can map out environments in real time, which is coming anyway. Like that, that's already happening. It has nothing to do with us. Okay, what we're doing that. is pause that for a second because Google, yeah, obviously spent a fortune mapping the world in two D, and they're now they're doing the under the ocean if they haven't already done it and everything else. Right? They give us that two D map of everything, and I, yeah. I say two D, but you can actually go into the street view and see it kind of in three D. But it's not really mapped in three D. You're taking it to the umpteenth level where you're talking about everything being mapped. Now, are you going to be the Google? Are you going to be the holder of this map? How are you? Does this now dovetail into the Spatial Web Foundation and what their it role does. is? 
Yeah. So, so we don't think um, anyone should control the map. We think the maps, the map, the sort of digital twinning of anything, right, becomes quite a question of data, data ownership and data assets and, and sovereign rights and location policy and, and global, you know, country level governance and laws and all kinds of stuff. This is going to be a, this is not a short journey, right? However, we don't think that it should be designed and controlled by a corporation. So even though Versus has our for-profit um, entity that's developing applications on top of the spatial web protocol stack, that core technology, just like the technologies that those protocols that sit in the World Wide Web Foundation are part of the Spatial Web Foundation, which is our nonprofit. And our, those are you know, essentially designed to maintain foundations in those cases are designed to maintain those technologies, make sure that they're open, make sure that they're standards based. So we're working with other large standards bodies like the IEEE and others to, um, to, to work towards this as the official global standard for the intersection of these various technologies. That includes a sort of ethical framework considerations we, we talked a little bit about. So we think it's really important to isolate kind of church from state in this case. And they both have their functions and they're both extremely useful. And, and in many ways, they're even very, um, very helpful to each other. It's, it's, in, it's important to commercialize standards instead of just being academic exercises. And in many cases, some of the large corporations we're talking to don't want to get locked into underlying technologies that are proprietary anymore. And so having open standards at that that bottom layer become really important. This is the benefit of the web today. And we, it kind of fractured a little bit when we got into the mobile environment because we really have kind of two proprietary operating systems. Certainly Android is more, much more open, but it's, it's under the control of Google. The, the, brow, the browsers are proprietary, but that underlying web architecture and technology is open. And it, it functions like a public utility for the planet. And we think that that's critically important as we get into this this level of greater utility at greater depth at greater fidelity at higher risk, right? So we think it's even more important that this is, uh, you know, managed uh, in a, in a non-commercial uh, way. Well, and, and as you know, the name of the podcast, Breaking Silos. And if you did not have this foundation and you were just saying, yay, we believe in the spatial web and we've patented this great new way to do it, you're just another silo and we would not be talking right now, right? That's right. That's right. The, the whole point here is that you have a vision of a future that's way bigger than your for-profit company, and you wanted to share the ability for others to, to realize that vision just like you have and compete with you. And when your customers, I mean, I'm assuming that when you say your customers, you know, don't want vendor lock-in, they don't want a proprietary solution, that you are designing things in a way that your customers can fire you to go to somebody else because that's how strongly you believe in, in the future of this vision. Is that an accurate statement? That's right. There's, there's, nothing, uh, there's nothing at the core level that's proprietary. Now, it's, it, we try to make it extremely convenient <laughs> for them um, so that they don't have to develop it themselves. You know, most people didn't build their own websites. And when WordPress came along, and Squarespace and others, everyone started realizing it's even easier to build websites. So very few people, you know, you know, are become coders um, and develop their websites. It, these these turn into these sort of you know web spaces of the future. Um, so we you know we're we're working more to be kind of like an industrial grade w- WordPress for the spatial web as opposed to the underlying architecture. So it always that back door is always open and and. People, you know, if we're not doing our job well enough, or our prices are not competitive, or we're, people think we're, they're getting squeezed in some way, then 
it is the, the architecture is designed for them to be able to then um, sort it out. And so eventually, it, it's it's actually about fostering, you know, healthy healthy competition because that's what that's what ecosystems are. We're more interested in developing healthy ecosystems and playing our role and are playing our part in 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 the adoption of of these underlying technologies. That's our main motivation. The 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 profit component of that uh, is to be a byproduct of us um, of us delivering on that promise. You know, that's it's. I am. A, you know, I'm a believer in 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 your approach here. And and we didn't meet until recently, until all this was underway. But you're following exactly what we did with Evernim and Sovereign. We conceived Sovereign. We knew that self sovereign identity was way bigger than us as a for profit. Yeah. Evernim. And so we're like, well, how can we give this away? And it ended up as, as Hyperledger Indy and Aries and Ursa and who knows whatever else they'll spin it into. But the whole goal all along was we can't own this. This is really good code. We spent millions of dollars developing it. But if we're the only ones that use it proprietary, then it doesn't solve the, the problem that we're trying to solve, which is to give people portability everywhere, including away from us. We wanted them to have a way to fire us. You have to you have to be willing to take that step. So I'm really impressed that you guys have done that. And just in the interest of time, uh, let's let's just tell, you know, for people who want to learn more about the foundation and the, uh, what's the name of the protocol that's being worked on there? It's the Hyper... No, it's a spatial web protocol. We call it HSTP. It's a hyperspace transaction protocol. Hyperspace transaction protocol. I was going to get it backwards. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and is is the work on that being done through the foundation? Yeah, it is. I mean, at this point, you know, the chocolate and the peanut butter are all kind of mixed together because very similar to probably what you guys went through is that the foundation, the, the, the protocol emerged from work that we were doing in Versus Labs. And so uh, now it's moved it's moved over to, into the foundation, but um, you know, we're it's all the same people. <laughs> so the same challenge that that we had, and that is that the 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 funds that were raised and the salaries that are paid are through the for profit company, and then you've got this the the foundation, and so you have this kind of separation process where you have to split it off so that the foundation sits on its own. It sounds like you're still in the middle of that, but that's what we needed to do with the Sovereign Foundation. But um, cool. Moving on to Versus, and this is what I'm, I'm most excited about, is your for-profit company and the product that you've come out with, with uh, Quicksilver. And uh, we've described earlier how it works, just as an example of uh, what the spatial web really is. I think that's your product is, is just uh, exhibit A of, of exactly what this whole concept, when it comes together, looks like. So let's just assume that we've explained what the product does. You know, what's it, would you call it a pick and pull? What would be a generic uh, label for that class of product? Those workers and that that activity is called pick and pack. Really, what's happening is from a generic perspective, it's just a what we call a spatial task. And there's some task that is a combination of identifying the right user, routing them to the right location. Um, making sure that they uh, collect the right asset and then drop it off at at, at a third point in space. It's got and a journey. It's not just about the, the yellow road. The yellow brick road doesn't end at the pick. I mean, they still have to you know finish the journey of the rest. So, so that all makes that's sense. right. Let's go yeah. to business level. Let's assume that we've talked enough about the product and and about mm-hmm. the web. And let's talk about your business. You guys have generated some revenue. You have some impressive. Uh, clients and brands that have taken an interest. How much of that? I know you've shared some things with me publicly, and I'm not sure, or privately, excuse me, and I'm not, I'm not sure 
exactly where the lines are. How much can you, <laughs> if you were to boast for just a minute about what you've accomplished, how much can you say about the traction you have and the brands that you've attracted and the business you're doing? Uh, let me let me try the safe but but fairly impressive version, and then uh, then if you if you have uh, some more questions, I'll I will I'll try to answer those. The the underlying work we did um, actually was spun out of a, uh, another incubator that was um, owned by my partner. So that a lot of the underlying architecture was built under the code name of a project versus. In September of 2018, we we decided to launch formally launch uh, a company that was going to focus on developing applications for industrial, uh, enterprise, and government uh, clients. Because again, the whole point here is how do we get adoption at scale? So the logistics category ends up being a multi-trillion dollar engine at the heart of, of all planetary activities. Turns out everything is just boxes put in other boxes, moving from one box to another box. <laughs> that's, that's every truck, every, every piece of equipment, every car, every warehouse, every location, every store, every home. It's boxes and boxes moving between boxes. So we said, you know what? That's going to be our books, like Amazon pick books. So we'll pick boxes. Um, so we started to develop um, an application. We found uh, a first client here um, in early 2019 here in Los Angeles, walked in and had a version of our current technology. We'd never applied it to uh, any sort of warehouse behavior um, without integrating with their inventory system, which we had to do later. We showed them a side-by-side -side comparison of three picks and we beat their current system by 200%. In, wow. in like a five minute setup, like, well, we're just going to make an anchor here, anchor there, anchor there in space. And we'll just call that item one, two, three. And then you guys will use your current system. And he was able to use our, a phone, look through the phone, route him right to the right box. And that was when we knew that the rest of it was going to wow. be integration work and, and, and real productization around it. But that the underlying fundamentals, which are really just remove the compute that a person's doing in their head translation between whatever is on the screen and the real world, if you could just give them real world context for the information, you're just going to reduce all that friction in the, in that task. And so that's what, that's what we did. I mean, do you know what it is, Tim? It's, it's the difference between MapQuest and Waze. It turns out the whole world is trying to operate every physical activity with some version of like direct, like text-based directions. And if you can just put the information into the world, it'll, it'll, it'll reduce the cost of business for anyone with any field work activity. Of any kind. Um, so in this case, we started with that first customer. Uh, we worked with them throughout the year. We included both the headset and the handset version. We did a lot of deep dives with a really understanding from the, from the picker's point of view. We also realized that admins didn't have a great view into what was happening on the floor. And so we took the digital twin and we made it so that they could have a three-dimensional view of the entire warehouse, the position of every person at any given second, the, the location of every single product, like wow. three dimensions. Let me interrupt you for just a second because uh, yeah. you can see how this could be uh, the world's worst surveillance system. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, I mean, ev everything that can be tracked will be tracked. Like that's the premise under which we architected a lot of the spatial web stuff with respect to what we felt was a framework that was had to, had to have ethics at the core, which is what we call TIFFs, which is trust, interoperability, privacy, and security by default. So even though right now that is not a concern for these companies, uh, nor is it a concern for those warehouse workers, we're already bumping into laws that I think sooner or later are going to have to deal with workers' rights with, with respect to their privacy on location. 
you know, can you track them the whole time? Can you track them in every room? Can you track them? You know, now what's great is our technology is going to say when that day comes, you're just going to flip a couple of additional switches in the UI and suddenly it'll conform. We'll write a spatial contract that conforms to whatever the, the policy is of that region. And anyone that hadn't turned it on could suddenly turn it on and it would spread across the whole network. Just kind of like updating a Wikipedia page, right? You update it once, whoever comes, it changes. So anyway, fast forward a year later, what's become clear to us, and this is our, our overall business strategy, is that we are not going door to door knocking on warehouses and saying, hey, we've got, you know, we've got a, a new mousetrap. How'd you like to use it? It'll save you a bunch of money. What we want to do is inject ourselves into OEMs and channel partners that are already uh, integrated with, in this case, thousands of warehouses you know, in, in, in countries all over the world. So we go from you know, 100,000 or to a million square feet with the first customer. Our, our second customer has got 10 million square feet and the third one has 5,000 warehouses. So now you're probably talking about hundreds of millions or billions of square feet. They're, these warehouse management systems of which there are four or five major providers end up being you know, 70% of the entire global market. So once you integrate once at that integration point, then you've basically lowered the, the barrier to entry for every other warehouse in their system because you basically already have the information. Now you're just creating a digital twin and you're mapping it into the facility. So there's a little bit of a setup, but even that setup could end up being self-service. That strategy of going from sort of the pilot to you know, 10x scale within 12 months was pretty, pretty good. But from there, it goes much higher. Can you name names? Because what I, I know you're dealing with one of the world's busiest ports. You're dealing with one of the world's foremost shippers. You're dealing with an entire country. Is, can you name any of them? Uh, I can't, but I can sort of hint. So one of our partnerships is with Esri. Uh, Esri is the number one geospatial mapping company in the world. They were, they're Google Maps for enterprise and they're government. They're super dominant, right? They're pretty, they're pretty much yeah, they're, they're, they're the number one in, in the market. They, they started this back in the 60s, you know, satellite imagery. As much as Google has mapped stuff for consumer use, the enterprise space where city planners and governments and militaries and large corporations that are using this for visualization and planning is at, you know, Esri pretty much has everybody. And so I think they have something like 350,000 customers and 75% of the Fortune 1000s and pretty much every city in, in the world uh, uses them. So we, we are working with partners like that, that where we can tap into and act as a value-added service layer to their current platform and ecosystem that really enhances a whole new feature set. So, you know, you can imagine like Google's, Google Maps is great, but it doesn't work indoors. <laughs> When I get to office, I'm trying to find something. I can't find anything. You know, I go inside Whole Foods, I can't find anything. So that's all going to transition. You know, they're, the largest port in, in Europe is uh, one that we're, we're in discussions with. Um, we just got back from the Middle East where they've got one of their long-term partners that's looking at um, a countrywide deployment. Interestingly enough, I don't know if this will make the logical leap, but if you take a warehouse and you look at the, the box, a, a wall with a bunch of boxes on it, right? Three-dimensional sort of layout. You take that and you lay it flat and you take those boxes and you make them shapes of like plots of land. Um, it's a land title management platform. My point is that whether it's in 3D or 2D, if you're trying to manage who can do what with something where, in the, in the case of, of, of this country, in the Middle East that we're talking to, because they're using Esri, which is two-dimensional maps, they wanted people to do land title management on the blockchain, open it up so that more 
agencies and parties and partners instead of the mainframe they use today could participate, but it needed to be spatial, meaning that plots of land change shape. So they need to be able to track the shape and they needed to wrap policy around and certify the use and sale of any of these things. And they wanted to use that with blockchain. Since Spatial Web Protocol is designed to be blockchain compatible, but also blockchain agnostic, we were the only candidate in the world that they even knew existed that could that could immediately apply this. And we'd already built plugins into Esri in order to that would allow us to showcase this. So what's funny is we we end up taking our core the core stack of technologies uh, in the Spatial Web uh, Foundation and then building kind of an enterprise layer and integration points in Versus, and then we can suddenly deploy a variation of this the same set of functionality or a certain set of functionality that I, I like to think of it as the taco bar, like of technology. Like it's all just meat, cheese, beans, <laughs> vegetables, and a tortilla. But someone wants a taco and someone else wants a burrito and someone else wants a quesadilla. We're just assembling these applications for different, different potential users in different verticals, but it's all just the same materials, right? Um, so that's, that's, that's another one. The third one is we're talking to the largest parcel parcel delivery provider in the world. And they are trying to figure out how to get the benefits of scale, how to incorporate blockchain into the provenance of the historical traceability of objects and assets and packages. And at the same time, get the benefits of how to kind of geofence and, and create permissions around and workflows around that. So they're, they're a partner of Esri's and they're, everyone's trying to figure out how to connect the dots between, you know, all those usual suspects of those different technologies. And so we end up being right at the center of gravity. So those, those conversations are, you know, everything from working to deploy a pilot to just early ongoing dialogues, but it's a great indication of the, the applicability of the underlying core of technology and how it's, it's almost like we're, like I said, we're, web, we're WordPress and then we're also building a handful of websites for different people. One happens to be in the warehouse area, you know, web, warehouse logistics website, land title management, port you gotta management. the pump, right? You got to. Yes, exactly. Now you've got, uh, and, and maybe, maybe I shouldn't say you've got revenue. You've got, I'm just going to say it generally over seven figures in bookings is that is that are we going to have to delete that or is that okay to say? No, so we we did we did recognize uh, uh, we, we booked um sorry we didn't recognize we we booked a million in year one uh, we as of in Q one well as of like last month so I was I say January um, we actually just recognized our first million dollar contract well once a million dollar contract paid <laughs> we're recognizing a million dollars in, in Q one so uh, of this year on a uh, $3.5 million contract. So we've, we've, we've grown really rapidly from that kind of that point A to point B 12 month, um, you know, growth, uh, annual growth, uh, year over year growth is, um, is looking really, really good. And there's a hundred plus customers in our pipeline, the vast majority of whom have been the product of introductions and conversations. Uh, almost none of that has been, I don't think actually any of it has been a sales strategy. And so what we've been lucky enough to do and you can kind of tell by virtue of, of who our advisory board is, is that, you know, we can tap into our, our social network. People start to hear that about what we're doing and it's a little vague at first, but then once we get into conversations, they realize, oh my God, this could solve this problem and this problem for us. And so how do we get, how do we get started? So we just kind of had to say, Hey, everyone just hold your horses. <laughs> we really appreciate the opportunity. We're going to get back to you 
so 2020 is the year where now we're starting to be able to tap into that that pipeline and prioritize it accordingly. And, and um, I, I'm I'm expecting you know a 10x total 10x total um, uh, increase year over year by the end of this this year. Awesome, awesome. Uh, very excited. Uh, you know that's that's been the knock on on blockchain uh, generally. And I'm not classifying what we're doing as self sovereign identity in in blockchain. But in you know all the the, the yeah. blockchain world complains about how many things are actually getting to production, and in the critics and naysayers, of course, point that out uh, it with glee. <laughs> um, how how <laughs> yeah. much it is, uh, you know, it's just taken a while. Of course, they forget how long it took for the internet to get a whole bunch of things into serious production and and for commerce to really move there, and it's still happening. But point is, is that you're doing real things. You're, you're solving real problems. You can take a real, a, a very aspirational, conceptual, almost academic uh, set of, of beliefs about the way the world should be, boil them down into actual protocols, boil those product protocols into real products and create a business model that has a real problem solution fit that, that you've, you've productized. Now you're on your way to product market fit and you got real revenue and people knocking down your doors. I mean, it just, it is absolutely uh, exciting and, and thrilling to hear and see what you guys are doing. Now, you, you have a fundraising round, and so any investors that catch this podcast might want to reach out. Is that correct? We're, we're going through um, Series A right now. We're really looking for smart, strategic. I would, I, would, I would lean towards the word partners, but of course, we're, if it's a pure capital injection, we're, we're interested in talking but because we kind of are... Highly aspirational. We need folks that kind of get where we're going in the long, long run, which is certainly a, like you said, a very uh, ambitious road. At the same time, we're we're almost building it brick by brick in a, in a hyper practical, very targeted way. So we're looking for partners and investors that that kind of understand what our ambitions are and yet can kind of help us with the long term, but also can be useful to us in the, in the near term as we we build the fundamentals out. Awesome. Sounds like the train is leaving the station. I mean, that's exactly the kind of story. If I'm an investor, uh, I want to hear is not only is it a hot new field of technology, but you've already got some traction, you've got some revenue, you've boiled it down to something that's really, uh, you know, hitting a nerve in the market. Great job. So uh, Thanks, thank you so much. To learn more about the spatial web, uh, don't forget to check out Gabriel's book. It's called the Spatial Web, How Web 3.0 Connects Humans, Machines, and AI to Transform the World. You can find it on Amazon. It is a wonderfully exciting uh, vision of the fully achievable near future. To learn more about Versus, V-E-R-S-E-S dot I-O is the website. To learn more about the Spatial Web Foundation, visit Spatial Web, that's S-P-A-T-I-A-L, webfoundation.org. A hearty thanks to Gabriel Rene, Executive Director of Versus, for joining us today on Breaking Silos. Thank you, Tim. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of Breaking Silos. If you have any feedback, ideas, or questions about the show or this episode, or working with us at Digital Trust Ventures, we invite you to visit digitaltrust.vc and get in touch. Thanks for listening.